Gracious Father, we thank you for your word to us in Genesis 11 and ask please that by your spirit uh, you would make to us uh, clear its meaning uh, and Father, you would use me. Uh, we, we pray that you would graciously use me to speak the truth and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, pride is one of those sins which we tend to notice in other people more than in ourselves. Uh, You've probably had experiences where you've dealt with someone and you felt that they were arrogant. And it's not a nice experience, is it? Uh, In our world of social media, uh, there are times when we might read someone else's post on Facebook or Instagram and they think that they're just sharing some family news. You know, but when little Johnny or Mary has topped their year at the selective high school, very same week as earning their licentiate in the violin and being selected for the Australian National Junior Basketball Team, it can sound a little bit like boasting, can't it? It's not enjoyable to encounter pride in somebody else. And perhaps the reason we're so attuned to pride in other people is because we all struggle with pride in different ways and so we really feel it when somebody strikes a blow against our pride. Well, ever since some medieval marketing man packaged up a a, a group called the Seven Deadly Sins, uh, pride has been regarded as perhaps the deadliest. Pride may well be what caused Satan to become a fallen angel. And so it isn't surprising to see that in the story of the Tower of Babel, which in a sense is the climax of the Bible's proto-history, these first 11 chapters of Genesis, which speak of the whole world in their creation and then their sad rebellion against God, we see pride taking centre stage. Uh, This is the last story about all of mankind in this special part of the, the book of Genesis, before the Bible is then going to narrow its focus down onto just one family, the family of Abraham, through whom God will bless the world. And what this climactic story highlights about mankind is our pride. Now, as I said with Noah last week, it's difficult to harmonise the Tower of Babel with anything like the fossil record or how secular historians have traced the development of language. Uh, we shouldn't pretend that that issue is problem-free. But at the same time, this is a story which can't be dismissed. Its account of mud bricks being used in ancient Mesopotamia is perfectly sensible and shows that it's, it's close to... Uh, it, it's, it's from an origin which is close to that area. Uh, and it, its account of human nature, I think, is obviously quite on the money. So as with Noah, uh, I'm simply taking this as the truth about our relationship with God. Some time after the flood, humanity had multiplied again and they all had the same language, we're told. And they went and settled on a plain called Shinar, which is Babylon, think Iraq in modern day terms, and they made mud bricks Now, that was the material available to them in this place, and perhaps you remember learning about the ancient Sumerians and their mud-brick ziggurats. But verse 4 shows that the idea that really expressed human pride and self-sufficiency to the max. In verse 4, 
They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So what was their motivation for building this tower? Well, if you'd asked them, they might have said, well, it was something about security, you know, and strength in numbers. They didn't want to be scattered over the earth. But clearly it's pride. They want to make a name for themselves. Come, let us build ourselves a city so that we may make a name for ourselves, they said. Uh, Even to this very day, if you build a big tower, you can make a name for yourself. I mean, why did they feel the need to build the Burj Khalifa Tower 800 metres into the sky? It took over from Taipei 101 as the tallest building in the world in 2009. Did they really need to build it that tall? Surely there's a little bit of pride going on whenever, uh, you know, someone builds the tallest building in the world. And I wonder how long it'll take before the Burj is overtaken. Perhaps still some time. It's interesting that this act of pride and self-sufficiency was done without reference to God. They didn't see it as a rebellion against God. They're so busy making a name for themselves, they hadn't even thought about God. And that's exactly why it's an act of rebellion. It's not that building a tower is necessarily a bad thing to do. But building a tower in pride and self-sufficiency to make a name for yourself. Well, we can gather from this passage that that is very displeasing to God, can't we? Ignoring God and having nothing to do with him and carrying on making a name for myself... Well, that is rebellion against God. And so the question becomes, what will the Lord's response be to this rebellion? Now, some people have thought that God was actually worried that they would be able to storm heaven, uh, since he does go on to say in verse 6 that with the same language, nothing will be impossible for them. But you can tell from verse 5 that God does not feel in the least bit threatened by their tower. Verse 5 says that the Lord came down to see the tower they were building. They're so far from storming heaven that, you know, God can barely see the little mud brick structure they're building from his heavenly throne room. Uh, They're literally called in this verse, the NIV simply translates them the people, but they're literally called the sons of Adam. The dusty creatures that God made from the earth. These are people, they're made of mud, they're building with mud. Are they an actual threat to God? Of course not. When we get proud and arrogant and rebellious, God just laughs. It's like a pair of five-year-old children deciding they're going to set up a rebellion in the lounge room against the oppressive rule of their parents. And so they build a cardboard version of the Eureka stockade there in the, in the, in the house. The parents are just going to laugh, aren't they? 
They're not going to feel threatened. And the more seriously that the children take themselves, the funnier it gets. You may have heard of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who famously proclaimed that God is dead. Uh, You might have wondered if God felt threatened by what Nietzsche had to say. But the answer to that is given by some graffiti, which is reputedly on uh, uh, the subway somewhere. Quote, God is dead, Nietzsche, 1883. Under that is written, Nietzsche is dead, God, 1900. Because Friedrich Nietzsche died in 1900. God doesn't feel threatened by the rebellion. Why then does he confuse their language? Well, clearly it was to frustrate the the building work. It was to stop them from building this tower. Uh, And it was to reduce permanently mankind's ability to undertake grand projects of pride and self-sufficiency. Now, of course, we still do it, don't we? We still give it a fair shake. But it was to reduce our ability to do this. Now, was this God acting in anger when he reduced, uh, when he uh, confused their languages? Uh, Could you call it a punishment? I think you could call it a punishment. God was greatly displeased at the pride that they were showing in their attempt to build this tower. The Bible tells us that God opposes the proud. When God confused their languages and stopped them from building the tower, that was God opposing the proud. But I think that God also has a purpose in mind of leading us back. By frustrating the proud, self-sufficient purposes of man, he gives us a chance to turn back to him uh, in trust and independence, in coming to God and say, actually, God, we do need you. I mean, those two five-year-old children who built their cardboard fortress in the lounge room, as soon as they get hungry, they'll have to leave their fortress and go to mum and dad and ask for some dinner, won't they? Uh, and that, that's the same sense when we find that our proud, self-sufficient machinations don't work. We'll come back to God and depend on him. And I think it's in that sense that there is mercy in God frustrating our plans because it should drive us back to him. The way that uh, the story of the Tower of Babel ends is deeply ironic, isn't it? Because what was the exact thing they wanted to avoid? Being scattered. And verse 8 says, so the Lord scattered them all over the earth. Not only that, but they wanted to make a name for themselves and they got themselves a name, didn't they? But not the most complimentary one. The city was called Babel or Babel, which means confusion. This unfinished tower became like one of those unfinished property developments which stands as a monument to the builder's insolvency. It would be embarrassing to have your name up on that, isn't it? The Tower of Babel, I feel it's a, it's a more subtle story than the others in the beginning of Genesis, isn't it? There's no explicit rebellion. There's no explicit disobedience. There's no murder. There's no language of wickedness. 
In God's response to the tower, there's no language of wrath. Uh, There's no putting of anyone to death. Instead, what we see here is man's rebellion taking the form of proudly trying to live without God in our lives. And God's punishment is to oppose the proud and frustrate man's efforts to live without him. Now, doesn't that sound exactly like what's been going on for the last 5,000 years? Man proudly living as if he doesn't need God. And God constantly reminding us, if we have ears to hear, that we do need him. What to me is so tragic is that the majority still don't have ears to hear and still think they can live without him. And we need to pray that God will open those ears. Because you see, it isn't God's final plan for mankind to be scattered. But instead of God gathering us through, you know, instead of human pride and human activity being what will gather us, God has his own plans to gather the scattered children. And that's why I chose today's gospel reading from from John. The scattered children were to be gathered not by means of human pride, but indeed they're, they're to be gathered by means that human pride would never have dreamed of through the death of Jesus, through something so humble and humiliating and even shameful that human pride just can't come to terms with it. Somebody recently pointed out to me that it wasn't until several centuries after Jesus that Christians started using the cross as a symbol. Because as long as the Romans were still actually there practicing crucifixion, It was just too shameful to use a cross as a symbol. It was in bad taste. Yet in God's wisdom, it is through that shame, instead of through pride, that God's children will be gathered. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if today uh, you are here and you, you, you don't yet consider yourself a Christian, you, you're here because you're checking church out, and if you've ever felt frustrated or humbled, have you thought that God might be calling you back? Can I ask, urge you to humble yourself before Jesus and his cross? Uh, If you're a Christian here today, if you're here because you know that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, and if you have been captured by the fact that Jesus died the most shameful death possible in order to gather in the scattered children of God, and if you know that you're one of those children, well, can I just say this, and I say this to myself as well, Let's not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Let's be humble, because it's just going to be better for everyone that way. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you because you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. 
Father, none of us is humble by nature. We all partake of that human tendency to pride. Uh, But we thank you for Jesus, his amazing example of humility. We thank you that he has gathered us by means of the most shameful method that anyone could have dreamed of. And we pray, Father, therefore, that you might cultivate in us that humility, that you would help us indeed not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.